Well, there's something I miss about my glory days of middle school football. Uh, you heard me right, glory days, middle school football. I did not make it to high school football uh, because I was, as my coach said, awful. Um, I know, it's okay, it's okay. I've, I'm in region right now, step 10. I'm continuing on after I've repented and confessed. So, so uh, but there's something I do miss, and it's not the 100 degree weather uh, in the middle of September, so thank you, Texas. Uh, it's not my coach yelling at me every time I made a fumble, which was often, uh, and it's not the fact that we lost every game for two straight years. Not a joke. And as I told my coach, he should not have made me quarterback. Uh, which is why we lost. And so I have no delusion of my sports abilities. Uh, But there's something I did miss about that time, uh, and it was the locker room. Uh, There was something kind of unique about the locker room because in the locker room, you have this uh, energy before the game, right? You have this connection before the game. You have this anticipation before the game. And then you go out and play and you come back at halftime and there's this regrouping and there's this restructuring, there's this rethinking about how to play the second half. And then you come back after the game and you get to do what? You get to tell stories of just amazing things that happen and celebrate other people and encourage other people and celebrate the play that that guy did, but that wasn't just one guy's play, it was the team's play. And so there's something I miss about those days and it's the locker room. Uh, and if we're honest in here, I think a lot of us kind of miss those moments in our life. We look back and, and it's not the, the game itself that we miss, it, it's that camaraderie amongst brothers. And in fact, as men come back from war, that's what they say that they miss most. They don't miss the battle, uh, they miss the brothers. And so as I've been thinking about that these last couple of weeks, uh, by God's grace, he's reminded me that he's given me a better locker room uh, to link together with brothers, uh, to share victories, to share stories. And so a couple weeks back, uh, some guys in here, the leaders of uh, Summit and myself, just kind of got to peel away into our own version of the locker room, and we just got to share stories. And those stories weren't from years ago or weren't from the early days of Watermark or weren't from a collection of stories from the last couple of uh, Summits combined. All of the stories we got to share was literally what happened in this room just last Summit. And so we got to hear stories about men for the very first time reading the word of God, uh, praying, uh, uh, memorizing scripture uh, for the very first time, many of whom that haven't been stepped, hadn't stepped foot in the church in many years uh, or at all. Uh, We heard stories about men gathering around with other men, encouraging one another, sharpening one another, and being there for one another when life happened. We heard stories about men uh, learning the bridge illustration, something we taught last semester, and being able to share that with their families and coworkers and extended family and people coming to Christ because of that. Uh, We heard stories about men wanting to get well uh, through Regen and Reengage, our recovery ministries on Monday and Tuesday nights. We heard stories about men that in this room profess for the first time an allegiance of faith in Jesus Christ. And then to be transformed by him, to go off and literally be reconciled with individuals in their life that they had harmed. We had to share story after story after story after story of these incredible moments. And what we marveled at about every one of those stories was one, all of those took place just last summit. And what we marveled at was this, that if this is the game, it's only halftime. It's only halftime. 
We've only covered eight chapters in Romans at this point. We got eight left to go. And so what we begin to realize is that the stories aren't done yet. God is not done writing his stories. And so one of the things we have prayed for constantly since the beginning of Watermark is that God wants to make his name famous in this world, in this country, in the state, and in Plano. So why not here? Why not now? Why not amongst the men that are in this room? God wants to transform individuals and transform families and transform communities. And it begins in moments like these. My life was radically transformed when I sat around and had just individuals begin to open up the word of God to me. And I began to see the riches and the treasure that it was. And it began to radically transform my life. Not because I just woke up early on a Thursday morning or just checked off the box saying, hey, I went to church, I went to the Bible study but rather because of everything that we do in this moment is meant to do one thing, which is to put us at the feet of Jesus. And he is the one that transforms us. And so the book of Romans throughout the centuries have radically transformed cultures because they've radically transformed men because the book of Romans is the gospel, plain and simple. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the son of God came, lived a perfect life that we could not died the death that we deserved and rose and conquered what we could not conquer, giving us life both now and for eternity to those that believe in him. And the more we sync up our lives with that truth and that message, the more our lives leave a legacy that matters. The more that our lives begin to impact those around us for good. The more that we see ourselves the way that we were meant to see ourselves as broken, yes, but radically loved that we are more sinful than we could possibly imagine and yet more loved by God than we could dare hope for, as Tim Keller says. And so, guys, it's just halftime. And something we've been praying for and knowing is that the stories aren't done yet. And so what we wanna do in our time right now is just, if this is the locker room before we run out for the second half, uh, some of you were here last semester, uh, some of you just got recruited midway through the game. Regardless, we're glad you're here. Because what we're gonna do right now is if this is the locker room, we're about to go out for the second half, what we're gonna do is we're gonna whiteboard the first part of the game. Look back at Romans one through eight, and then we're gonna look ahead at Romans six, uh, nine through 16 and kind of trajectory out the plays that we see happening in the second half of this game. And so that's what we're gonna do in these next few minutes or so, and then we're gonna give it back to the table so that y'all can start to discuss what you hope to get out of the second half. And so let's dive in. And so what we're gonna do right now is as we move through this, there's not gonna be a lot of stories, there's not gonna be a lot of narrative, this is just the plays that were run last semester, and so there's a lot of structure, and so you can follow along on page nine in your booklet, uh, but that's where we're going this morning. Um, and then at the very end, uh, as we close out our time, uh, we're gonna be looking at just each, every, each and every individual week um, and how that's gonna play out. And so let's dive into the book of Romans together. Uh, some of, for some of you that were here last semester, a lot of this will be familiar, uh, but all of us will get caught up uh, to where we're at and where we're going. And so let's get moving. And so Romans uh, is divided into four distinct parts. It's 16 chapters, but it's four distinct parts. Sin, sal salvation, sovereignty, and service. Sin, salvation, sovereignty, and service. So we're gonna look at each one of these parts individually as we walk through uh, a book that has radically transformed uh, the world. And even though we're just looking at the structure, uh, the structure itself is the gospel. 
And so this is not just data for you. Uh, This is a remembrance of what these truths are and how they can impact your life. And so first up is sin. Uh, In the first three chapters, Paul is going to lay out his doctrine of sin, and he's going to lay it out in three distinct parts, even within the first three chapters. He's going to open up with the gospel greetings. Paul always began, and he's going to end with the gospel, the good news that we talked about just a second ago, that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave. And as he's saying hello, he's saying hello, but I am identified solely with the person of Jesus Christ. And then from there, he's going to build a case. And so it's helpful to imagine almost a courtroom mentality. And he starts to call different people up to the stand. And so with that, he's going to make a claim that all humanity stands collectively condemned before God. And for each group that he calls up, he's going to bring some evidence against this group. And so for the first group, he's going to call up the self-serving sinner in chapters, uh, chapters 1, 18 to 32. And this is the person that just says, hey, I don't need God. I can be my own God. And you see that person derailing into all things that are wicked and evil. And that person claims, hey, I don't need God. So that's the person who is either the staunch atheist or the person that goes, you know what? I know that there's a God, but I really don't care that there is one. And I'm going to do my own thing. And so the evidence that Paul brings up for this individual is creation. Creation. He says creation, God has, in creation, God has shown himself to humanity so that mankind is without excuse. And so even someone living in in an area that they've never actually heard the name Jesus, God has still revealed himself to humanity, meaning that every man, woman, and child internally knows that there is a God. The issue is not, uh, the issue is not ignorance, it's rebellion. It's not that we don't know that there's a God, it's that we know that there's a God and still choose to rebel against him. And so that person stands condemned before God because creation testifies against them. But then in chapter two, there's another type of person, the moral man. And this individual says things like, hey, I'm good enough. I've done certain things, I've, I've polished my life, I'm not as bad as my neighbor or as the guy sitting next to me. And Paul claims that the thing that, that the evidence that Paul brings is the man's own conscience, the man's own conscience, that our conscience betrays us. Because even though we could probably make a resume that looks really good, there's a lot of stuff that we would leave out because we know that we've done things that don't match up to our own standard. And so that person stands condemned. The next person is the religiously righteous and that's the second half of Romans 2. And this individual says, hey, I know I've done bad, but look, I've obeyed the law. God has revealed his law to me, and I have done everything I'm supposed to do within that law. I've gone to church. I've gone to Bible study. I've woken up a little bit early on Thursday to get here on time uh, to be at a Bible study. I've checked off the boxes. And so therefore, yes, I've done bad things, but my good things have outweighed that. I've done the religious acts I'm supposed to do. I've checked off the box. The problem with this person, the evidence that Paul brings for this person is the covenant law, that God has revealed his law to us. And even though we can check off some of those things, we haven't checked off everything. And therefore, that person stands condemned before God. And so just in case you think you're exempt, Paul's going to call up all of humanity next. So he's brought up all these different groups of people and he's like, all right, now everyone get up there. And in uh, chapter 3, 9 through 20, he's going to say a a series of quotes from the Old Testament. Hey, everyone stands condemned before God. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Every single one of us 
No matter where we came from, what our background is, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so there was an image that we kept coming back to last semester, and it's an image that I think really helps understand just the weight of these first three chapters. And it's the image of the Hoover Dam. So imagine, if you will, you're standing at the base of the Hoover Dam. And behind the Hoover Dam, there's this wall of water. And imagine that that water represents this, the wrath of God that's being stored up for your sin. That he is the just judge. And his rightful response to our sin is wrath and judgment. And imagine at some point that's going to break and it's going to flood into you. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You are fully and completely guilty. And this is your punishment. Now imagine that there's a giant hole behind you. And let's just say for the sake of the illustration that that giant hole is in the shape of the cross. You have literally two options here. You can stand before the cross and let that water of God's wrath fall upon you. Or you can stand behind it as the water of God's wrath fully floods into the cross of Jesus Christ. So much so that not a single drop falls upon you. And so in Romans 3.21, Paul calls up another witness. And it's not the self-serving sinner or the moral man or the religiously righteous or all humanity. He calls up one guy, and it's Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that justifies. And in Romans 3.21, the entire argument shifts to begin to celebrate that, yes, the bad news is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the good news is that Jesus has come to save, to redeem, to rescue us from ourselves to take the full weight of the wrath of God upon himself so that not a single drop would fall upon us. And that's the end of chapter three. And so that is his conversation about sin, that we have fallen and yet there is a hero that has come into our story to save us. And so in chapters four through eight, he moves now into his conversation about salvation. And salvation is going to fall, as you, if you were here this past Sunday, Todd talking about it, it falls into these kind of three movements. The first movement is justification, that we are saved from the punishment of sin, that not a single drop of God's wrath falls upon us because of Jesus, that we are saved from the punishment of sin, we are justified, we are made right before God because of faith in Jesus. And so we are justified, chapter four, by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, by switching allegiances from our own self-righteousness to the righteousness of Jesus. But then from there, we have a blessing that comes from faith. That as we walk with God, that there's this blessing that comes from that new allegiance with him. And so we've been justified by God, but we also have been sanctified by God. That we are being saved from the power of sin in our life. That sin no longer has dominion over us. That we don't just come to Christ and just kind of say a prayer and then just go off and live life however we want, but rather we come to Christ, know him, and the more we know him, the more the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so in chapter six, we have a new relationship with sin. That sin no longer is this brutal master over us. It used slave analogy of this, that that sin once reigned over us and ruled over us and that sin was a brutal, harsh master. And so for me, I struggle with anxiety and fear and control. And when that starts churning up in me, what I know 
is that I am bowing my knee to my old master who has no dominion and no claim over me. And he is a cruel, wicked master. And so the amount that I give myself over to my old master is the amount by which I will continue to sin and continue to struggle with sin. And yet Jesus is our new master. He has dethroned the other guy. And he is now in the throne room of our own hearts. He is our new master who loves us and cares for us. So we have a new relationship with sin. We also have a new relationship with the law in chapter seven. That in chapter seven, we began to realize that the law was never meant to be something that we were supposed to adhere to so much so that we would be able to obtain our own right standing before God. But rather it was meant to be this mirror to show us that we were broken. And the more we understand the law of God, the more we see just how broken we really are. That a true believer following Jesus throughout their whole life will begin to slowly see more and more how sinful and how awful they are and how broken they are, which will make God's glory and God's grace seem all the more wonderful. And we have a new relationship with the law. It's so much so that when Paul ends this chapter, he just begins to realize what a wretched man am I? Who can save me from this body of sin and death? But then he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ who always gives me victory. I am broken, but I have a beautiful savior. That's chapter seven. And because of that, we have a new relationship with God, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, for, the, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to redeem those that were under the law, to rescue us, to save us. We have a new relationship with God as we continuously grow into Christ's likeness because we've been justified. And so from there, as we grow in Christ's likeness through the rest of our lives, we have something to look forward to, which is glorification. That at some point, we will see him face to face. We will be like him fully. And we will be saved ultimately from the presence of sin. That we will not have an inclination to sin. Our old self will be fully crucified. The war will be over. And he'll say, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we get to spend eternity with him and from the moment you are justified, it says he who has been justified will be glorified. Which means that there is, as Paul says at the end of this, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor death, nor angels or demons, nor things of the past, nor things present, nor your own stupidity can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have been glorified. So that is where we landed last semester. We have been broken by sin, but we have a beautiful savior in Jesus. It is a simple truth, but one that we always have to go back to. We never outgrow. So here's the reality. It's only halftime. The book's not over yet. And so there's two major sections left within the book of Romans, and it's the sovereignty of God in chapters 9 through 11, and then the service unto God in chapters 12 through 16. And now if you have any familiarity with the book of Romans, you know that 9, 10, and 11 are a little tricky, okay? So welcome back. <laughs> That's what we're diving into. 
But here's the reality, and I hope that you get this this morning, of why 9, 10, 11 actually exists in your Bible. What happens in a lot of churches as they move through the book of Romans, they go one through eight, and they take a break, and then they come back, and they're in chapter 12, and they're like, did I miss that? And they're like, no, we just skipped it, because we don't know why it's in there. Every bit of God's word is profitable, and so there's some reason why it's in there. And I would tell you this, the reason why 9, 10, and 11 exist in our Bible is to validate chapters one through eight. Because the reality of it is in chapters one through eight, there's this beautiful picture of all these promises that God is giving us. Hey, I'm gonna save you from the punishment of sin. I'm gonna save you from the power of sin. I'm gonna save you ultimately from the presence of sin in your life. And we go, yes, Lord, that's great. But then there's a question that we have to ask. Because I've read the Old Testament. And God, you made promises to this group of people called the Israelites, the Jews, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And those promises haven't been fully fulfilled yet. So God, you made these promises to these group of people. Now you're making promises to us. How can we know that what you're saying is true? And God spends three chapters unpacking how we know that chapters one through eight is true and valid. Because God is sovereign over all things. And he begins to declare what has happened to the people of Israel and that his promises have not been broken and that they will be fulfilled. And so yes, there's some confusing language in there. Yes, there's some nuances that take a lot to understand. Yes, Paul ends chapter 11 by just going, who can understand the mind of God? This is nuts. My paraphrase. Yes, Peter even says, hey, when you're reading Paul's writings, sometimes they're hard to understand. I almost put that on the cover of this book. But the reason 9, 10, and 11 exists is to validate that all the beautiful truths of, of 1 through 8 are real and can be trusted. And so in chapter 9, we, we hear about the past election of God's people, that God did not pick them because they were better, because they performed a certain way, because they looked a certain way, but God picked them because he was merciful. He loved them according to the Old Testament because he loved them, not because of anything that they had done. It wasn't their performance, it wasn't their parents, it wasn't their lineage, it was rather that he had grace upon them, that he sovereignly chose this group of people to show his love and show his grace, and the goal of that was for them to spread out to the world and share it with the nations. And in chapter 10, we realize that those people have rejected God. They had every reason to believe and trust and walk with God, and yet they rejected God. They, put, they turned away from God, which is why in chapter 10, there's such a push for a belief in the person of Jesus Christ. They rejected God when the Son of God arrived, when the chosen one of the Old Testament, where the entire Old Testament was leading to, showed up on the scene. They rejected him. They crucified him. They called him names. They rejected the answer. And that's why in Romans 10, it says, believe in Jesus with your heart. Trust with him. Confess him as Lord. But there's a rejection of God. So as God's promises failed, is God moving on to plan B? No. 
Chapter 11 talks about the future salvation of these people, that God's plan is still moving forward, but we live in a time in which God is calling the nations to himself and moving out on his own because God's heart was always to reach the nations, always to reach all people, and this people that he had chosen had rebelled against that, and so God steps in and God pushes forward uh, the, the, the gospel message to the world, and yet within that there's gonna come a moment, we get a, we get a glimpse into the future in which there's this moment that's gonna come in which people, the Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament will be called back to God as God fulfills his promises. And so how can we know that chapters one through eight is true and all those beautiful promises within there? It's because God is sovereign over all things and he will fulfill his promises. The promises of God cannot be broken and cannot be jacked with by man. He will fulfill his promises. This is not plan B, this is plan A that has been orchestrated before the foundations of the world. That's why that exists. And if chapters one through eight are valid, and in nine, 10, and 11 proves that, then our most natural, our most logical response is to live a life of service. Chapters 12 through 16 talk about living a life of service. It begins by your dedication to God and then and it moves into just how every aspect of your life begins to be infiltrated by your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it goes through all these different uh, camps within uh, your life. It first talks about the church body, that you have been given unique gifts and talents and abilities to invest in one another, to love one another, to sharpen one another, that there is no such thing as a Christian in isolation but rather we have been called to an us, a brotherhood of believers. And we're supposed to use our gifts to encourage one another, sharpen one another, love one another, not to make much of ourselves, but to sharpen and love and so that we would all be built up into the person we meant to be. And so from there, it moves on. From the church body to citizens in a state, that what happens just doesn't happen within these walls, but it moves out to how we love our neighbors and how we submit to authorities above us, whether that's at work or within our governments, that we uh, want to be citizens within a nation, that we are citizens of heaven and yet we're citizens of earth. And so how does that play out? That's chapter 13. In chapter 14, it talks about how you're supposed to interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, namely those that are weaker in the faith and those that are stronger in the faith. There's some people that have been walking with Jesus a lot longer, and there's some people that have just been new, new. And what happens is people who have been walking with Jesus longer begin to look down on those that, have, that are new to the faith, and Paul goes, no, we're supposed to love one another, even if that means limiting certain liberties that you have, even if that means limiting certain legalistic practices that you have. Love limits those things because we are called to love one another. Chapter 15 talks about a life on mission. Paul just explains how he's getting after it and he's moving throughout this world and it's an illustration and it's an example for how we are supposed to be moving out in this world. That we don't just stay within our little church building. We don't just move out to be a citizen and be a good person, but we share the good news of Jesus Christ to the world because Jesus will not return until that happens. In chapter 16, he ends with just relationships with others. He lists a lot of names which can seem kind of dry, but the more you dig into it, you realize that how much Paul wasn't just going out and sharing the gospel message to a group of people without a care for them, but he had a deep love for the individual, just like we are supposed to. 
And then Paul ends his entire message by proclaiming once again the gospel that Jesus has come, he has saved, he has redeemed. Everything is about him. Your life is about him. Your businesses are about him. Your marriages are about him. And the more we link up to him, the more our lives cease to be a footnote in history and start to, start to be a centerpiece because he is the centerpiece. And so we have all sinned, but God has saved. And we know that his promises are true because he is sovereign over all events in human history and he will fulfill his promises. And so because of that, we live a life of service unto him as we love God and love others. Men, it's only halftime. The stories are not done yet. And when you get into Romans, Romans will get into you. You will get out of this what you put into it, like all of life. So it's my prayer that you would wrestle with it. You would do what Martin Luther said and said, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna beat up Paul until he gives me what I want. Not just flip through it late on Wednesday night, but really meditate it on throughout the week. Wrestle with the truths there. Ask questions. Leave going, man, I wanna look that up later. I wanna ask my leader later about this question because I'm wrestling with this right here. Because the more we know God is the more we love him. And the more we love him is the more we live lives for him.